She's not going to cough anymore now. <laughs> Hello, listeners. This is episode 21 of the Atkins Labcast coming out two days late. Two days late because... Because. We, we didn't like the first no, recording. No, we failed. Our we first, fail. Our first go at our intro and outros yeah, were pathetic. We weren't, we weren't happy with it. We that. were tired and moany and a yeah. bun- bunch of No bitches. one wants to listen to moany. And quite frankly, our first goes did not do justice to the glory of the guest. Well, that's because a good point. Because I am going to try really hard throughout today's session to not fangirl too much, but I have to say she's extremely impressive. Yeah, totally, totally. The, the thing uh, – so we're talking about our guest, Judith Crispin. We are. Um, she – Who is what I want to be when I grow up? Well, you got to be careful because she's she's. It sounds like she. I don't know. She looks like she's my age. I don't know how she's, old she is. She's a bit closer to me than you. In age, okay. But um, she launched her book, The Lumen Seed, here at the office when we had our gallery mm. running, and she did poetry reading from the book and told stories. And the room was it a packed room? It was a you know quiet night, and we had I don't know maybe fifteen people or something. And they were enthralled, every oh. single one of she, them. She, uh, you know, I wondered, I because I listened, this is the only episode I've listened to twice because I just wanted to and I wanted to watch it as well because I was like, I don't have any concept. Well, that's why I put the one. video in. I thought you might like uh, to, that's what the video, yeah, and we're not doing video anymore as you, gang, have already worked out. Mm. Oh, we're, we're very limited, but I still record the video. Because we're using Skype and I record the video and it's it's good sometimes to Can see. You, maybe we do like maybe we do a little snippet of her talking about those guys who came and saved her when she was freaking out. That guy, yeah, was, that might be a nice little. Yeah, we're referring. She's to just it. incredibly magnetic and kind of yeah. charming and beautiful. Like she's so beautiful and so talented. Like the combination. She's fucking intimidating yeah, as shit. I, know. I don't think I want to be in a room with her. <laughs> I think I just what was crawl that? into a ball. The, the first, the, her first, her first love was composing. She composed I know, music. like just fuck off with your over bloody achievements, Jesus no, Christmas! And then she just throws out in the first ten minutes of the show that she's what does she go? She goes to Turkey and. Sneaks into the armed forces, something, something well, to so, so steal wh- wh- these photos, and you're just like, "Hang on, what just happened?" And she just like throws that out there, like it's, "Oh yeah, when that that one time when I was in Turkey and, snuck and went into, into a the military base, military to, base, and and, and stole some photos because the Australian she, government's she denying the Armenian. Because, yeah, there was a basically part of the uh, Armenian one of the early mm. Christian cemeteries was demolished and a military base had been built over the top of it. So she went in to photograph where the cemetery would have been. Amazing. And um, included that in the installation piece that they built, which was a, uh, I suppose, a, a 360 uh, virtual reality experience. Not not so much a goggles experience, but you stand in this room, look around and you see the cemetery mm. with some of the reconstructed <coughs> headstones and, and all that stuff. And, of course, her point being that the... Uh, Australian government is one of the few governments in the world that doesn't still doesn't recognise the Armenian genocide, mm. and it's got to do with that us maintaining like, Anzac Day oh, at, that in made Turkey. Me so fucking mad because I have complicated, very complicated feelings about Anzac Day that 
relate to my heritage as my mother is German and was born immediately after the war. And um, and so I have a whole lot of things, you know, and this is the thing you cannot ever say anything but yeah, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Otherwise yeah. you get dragged through the street. So I'm not fucking saying a word. You, you, just, you just don't like the jingoism of it all. And and I don't and there's quite a chunk of Australia. I'm, not, I'm literally not going to talk about it. No, no. I'm just saying there's quite a chunk of Australia that doesn't. But G- Judith's point was in the think the think there's some things stories that are not have not been told about Australia's uh, like really great stories of of what Australian troops have done in Turkey mm. to do with. Uh, looking after the children and and, and exposing the fact that there was yeah a and just just happened. so they keep the whole Anzac Day per, uh, celebration happening oh, at Anzac Cove to yeah. get access to and it. that's only the first ten minutes of the podcast yes. episode I know, like it's, very it's ridiculous and then she goes into all this incredible stuff about her indigenous heritage and her time spent on the land with indigenous people which is just like oh, I mean I. I'm like every other Australian except for like a poofteenth of Australians that uh, actually have some underst- have a greater a, a, a healthy understanding of indigenous Australians. I am ignorant as fuck about them, about their cultural history. All I had was what we all got in school, which was oh dream time seems fun, you know, like and we do spot painting with our fingers and that's it. I you know, I paid close attention to the um Deaths in custody and and I and also um, stolen generation report and the deaths in custody I was rudely smacked about the head and well deserving um, by a podcast she will put that in the show notes a podcast um, on background briefing about the relevance of Black Lives Lives Matter in Australia and the deaths in custodies that are still not just in custody but just also with with police involvement of Indigenous people and she talks about the highest number of – what was, was like was some like unfathomable amount of people that kill them – children that mm. kill themselves mm. um, between 8 and 12 years old or something. Yeah. Like it was just like I don't have an ability to process what the fuck that means. Yeah. It is horrifying. Yeah. Like – She's got she's got a good perspective on this stuff, and it it doesn't she bur- does it doesn't she, bury her. No, she has, and she's like my sister in that she has an ability to because my sister has worked in in social work, and so because she's there doing stuff about it, she's involved in things around it. It makes it less, I think, kind of, um, you know, the shock of that is is less stupefying and it's more something that drives her to continue working. Whereas for me, I don't do – I can't do it. What am I? I'm some boring white rich lady in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. I don't do anything. Yeah. And so – and I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start. And maybe that's the task for people who know how to do these things, get somebody like me to be able to do something other than sit around feeling shitty about it. Well, you're talking about it and you're thinking about it. Um. Yeah, and it's not – I mean, I think it's important to remember that that's a very small part of the conversation. The large part of the conversation is actually about just the beauty of their culture and her, their embracing of her and their sort of sharing of themselves and their lives with her and just some beautiful things in there about how, 
you need like there was that beautiful bit where she talked about um, how the land needs to see you and that the land can't see you if you smell like the other and the Indigenous women will will wipe under their arms and then wipe it on you so you smell like the land and that then they can then it can see. It's just like you just want to sob. It's so beautiful. Well, it's the, you know, a lot of it is that the stories that we hear and read and listen to interviews, but it's it's brought but to it life. It's real. But it no, isn't. no, but it's brought it's the this stuff in practice. What yeah. I'm what I'm saying is what she talked about is the embodiment of that, the actual embodiment Absolutely, of that. Absolutely, but cult. this is not in our Australian culture. Like it just fucking isn't. There's not a TV show filled with this stuff. There's not bloody – little white boys are not taught to, to do Indigenous dances. I mean, I mean, you look at all the struggles that, that Māori people have in, in New Zealand and how much more highly integrated their cultures are to the Western cultures and how much more embraced it is, like infinitely more, and they still have issues with it. We are so – backwards in that stuff in yeah. this country. I mean, we, there are more people running around with bloody dream catchers hanging off their friggin' <laughs> rear vision, vision mirrors, mirrors and friggin', you know, traditional um, Native American headdress T-shirts and fucking sofa cover cushions and shit than anything Indigenous. Nothing. We're all, oh, yeah, I'm going to wear myself a bloody Indigenous head, which is a revolting thing to do from a cultural appropriation. But I'm just saying, I'm on my high horse. Don't ask me to get off it. I don't care how many no, minutes we've get, been in. Hang on, you're getting off it right now because I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing. What? And then we're gonna leave these <sighs> listeners with a podcast. He's just right? knock me off my high horse. I am what a you right off. Of I just want to acknowledge the fact that we meet today. Oh don't on the land of the Ghana people. Cry. The traditional owners which we we respect and the the new owners and new generations coming so through. You say that every time. I know, I know. I'm remiss in doing that because the, 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 I've I've said it a few times in opening exhibitions and public speaking, and I've always said that uh, the way that this place was found after they'd been looking after for forty thousand years before we've yeah. come on screen up was super impressive, yeah. um, and super wonderful, and um, we're very grateful to be here and to be a part of it, and we. And we haven't seceded sovereignty of the land uh, to these people. It's it's their land, and we're we're very lucky to be here and using it. So anybody, anyway, let's let these wonderful people listen to Judith. Judith being magnificent and glorious, <laughs> and we are going to purchase the prints that we want before this goes live, so <laughs> that nobody goes and buys all the shit that I want. All you right. can just wait your fucking turn. All right, gang, um, enjoy. See you afterwards. Judith Crispin, all the way from our nation's capital, Canberra, which is normally the coldest place on Australian Earth. Uh, but I think now, I don't know, you guys, are you are you in Frostland now? You got the, the skis on? <laughs> we're underwater, really. Oh, are you you're flooding? <laughs> yeah, we're flooding. It's not it's not as cold this year as it was previous years for some reason. Last year it snowed, but this year nothing. I think it's the blanket that brings the rain that's on everything. Um, that is keeping you a little bit above freezing. Yeah, could be. Yeah, and you're just out of town in Canberra. You're in um, you're you're uh, rural, would you say? Yeah, I'm in Womboyne, which is just outside of a little town called Bungendore. So we're technically in the Greater Canberra region, but yeah, it's not really Canberra. 
Okay. So is that uh, north, south, east, west of, of the city? Yeah, as you drive from Canberra to Sydney, you go past Lake George, which often has no water in it, but which yeah. has water at the moment. Really? And I'm right near there, near Lake George. Because that's an amazing sight, Lake George. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really bizarre. But, yeah, you're out with the kangaroos. You're just telling me uh, that your puppy dog has a, a raging battle through the glass with a kangaroo that's not not quite best mates. No, it's the Mike Tyson of kangaroos and... One day my dog's going to break the window to try to get to him. <laughs> oh, no. That would be terrible because the kangaroos can be pretty pretty rough on dogs. Yeah, and my dog's got this inflated view of his own abilities. <laughs> I think all dogs do, don't they? <laughs> so, look, it wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't so great the beginning of this year where you are. You were being threatened by bushfires and the like. Um, and you, you – I mean, we're, we're, talk, we're here to talk about photography, but I'm also curious about your response to – because you're an artist at heart, you're a you're a poet, you're a photographer, um, you're a wrangler of dead things, which <laughs> we can talk about. Um, yeah. are, are you are you a musician as well? I, yeah, I spent the sort of first part of my life as a musician. Uh, my tertiary qualifications are in music, and I was a composer up until around about I guess fifteen years ago when I hung up my tiara and. Across the Berlin Wall. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, but okay, so you're so you're an all rounds receiver of the world and re re giving it back to us in different ways. Um, and this has been a really shocking year for everybody. Tell me about the bushfires and and uh, and you have also a very strong connection with country, which I'd love to get back onto because you and I met over the Lumen Seed, which is a book you released of poetry and photographs. Uh, we can talk about that, but Tell me about the bushfires in Canberra and tell me what you found yourself doing and and, and, and how you responded to all of that. Yeah, well, the bushfires, um, they shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Um, you know, the government was warned repeatedly that this was going to happen. But uh, um, we, I think, were surprised with how um, scant the resources were in trying to fight them. So we had fire behind us in North Black Range and in front of us on the Clyde Mountain. And my friend's farm, she's a sculptor, and she runs this farm outside of Braidwood. And um, she had fire on four fronts. So uh, the resources just were not there. Everybody was paranoid that the fire was going to come through Namadji and hit Canberra. And so all of the resources that should have been directed to the regional areas that were really under threat were diverted to Canberra. So there's this, just a handful of volunteer RFS people out fighting these fires, hopelessly under-resourced. So in Braidwood and Mongalo, they put together a mosquito army. So anybody who had a, a ute that was capable of carrying a, an IVC with sort of a 1,000 kilograms of water on it would put that IVC on the back of the tank with a, a a pump and a fire hose and get out there and put out the spot fires. It probably saved, I wouldn't even know, hundreds of places as a result of it. And the RFS were really great. They um, sort of directed people, um, helped us enormously to sort of get the skills, basic skills to just put out spot fires. And since those fires, I've now joined the RFS. And so oh. now I'm, uh, I'm working with them so that in the next fire season, they're going to have more resources and more people Wow. Yeah, well, it's pretty tough going. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and I know you've you've done a, f a few social justice 
projects as well, um, you know, sort of around your art and the the work you, ha- I mean, completely different concept, but the work you did with the Armenian genocide and the repatriation of a cemetery. Uh, so if this is a community thing, or are you feeling these things that you just need to do something about, or what drives you with this? Well, I don't know. I think it's maybe just a different perspective that are to that which some people have. I mean, I was just raised, I think, to to believe that people aren't separate from each other. Um, if if somebody in my community is struggling, then I am struggling as a result of that. And also, you know. My mum, who's super wise, she used to say to us when we were growing up that all the best joy is borrowed from a dog, you know. <laughs> you see a dog being really happy, makes you happy. But it works with people too. If um, It's really, really easy to bring joy to somebody. You just have to hear them. That's all you have to do. And then their joy comes to you too. It's so much more satisfying than just buying a new camera lens, you know, which is a very short-lived joy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, um, t- tell us about um, the 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 work you had done with the uh, repatriation of the cemetery. Um, was the pro- the project was the Jalpa project? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as you may or may not know, there's only a handful of countries in the world that still officially deny the Armenian genocide, and Australia. Yeah, Australia's one of them. Yeah. yeah, and the reason we do it is because we want to have our photo ops at Anzac Cove. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and Turkey's made it clear that if we acknowledge the Armenian genocide, that's going to be shut um, for our PR purposes. And so we just continue to to lie about history. And there's an enormous um, disadvantage to it too for us. I mean, we love to to push forward this idea of the Australian war hero. Um, but if you look at the whole Anzac thing, if you only look at the official narrative, what we did was fail to invade Turkey. It's not exactly glamorous, right? Yeah. However... What we really did do there, the Australian soldiers were the ones who blew the whistle on the Armenian genocide. There were there are enormous accounts of these amazing Australian heroes that came in and, and got kids out of camps on camels and did all of that. We can't celebrate any of those people because we're denying the genocide. Wow. So a few years back... Um, we were going to have, when I was director at Manning Clark House, we were, we were wanting to run a forum on Anzac Day to bring some of these truths to light. Manning Clark House, sorry, just wind back. Manning Clark yeah. House is a uh, is a gallery centre, a cultural centre in Canberra, is that right? Yeah, cultural centre, human rights, um, yeah. It sort of celebrates the legacy of um, Manning Clark, who was a very humanitarian historian. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we got this guy, Vikan Babkenian, who's a wonderful scholar on the Armenian genocide, to come up and speak on the panel, and he did this great job. But while he was there, he showed me these photographs, really rare photographs, um, that had been reproduced in a book that he had, of these ornate, incredible um, tombstones. They were, it's as far as we know, the very first Christian cemetery and probably the greatest art gallery for a Christian sculpture in the in the Caucasus. Absolutely beautiful. And not only um, Christian stones, but also pagan stones in the, in the shape of rams, all engraved with Aramaic, and it's just stunning. And then he told me that the entire cemetery was raised to the ground and the stones smashed and pushed into the river so that they could deny that Armenians had ever lived there as part of their efforts to deny the genocide. Wow. 10,000 people still buried there. 
So then what they did, this cemetery is in a place called uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is part of Azerbaijan. They poured concrete over the whole site, turned it into a military base so that um, nobody could ever try to, yeah, get those remains back. I couldn't live with it. Just kept thinking not only about about the fact that why do these despots always feel they have to destroy art? For a start, that drives me crazy. But also to just erase 10,000 people as though they didn't matter. So we started this big effort to try to put the cemetery back, not physically, but put it back as a VR reconstruction. So we went um, to Armenia and Iran and Azerbaijan and we tracked down this um, these photographs that were being hidden so that they couldn't be destroyed by the authorities, brought them safely back to Australia and they're now in the State Library in New South Wales. And we... Um, snuck into Iran and uh, photographed the military base, which is pretty terrifying um, because we needed the the terrain the around place. the yeah. base in order to put the VR construction back. And then we, we reconstructed the most important of those stones and uh, exhibited it all in Rome. Wow. Well, yeah, it was a project. So you're managing this sort of a broader project uh, and, and, um, and this concept actually was executed and shown in Rome, and where does it live now? Yeah, um, it now belongs to the to the Australian Catholic University in oh, wow. Sydney. So they, yeah, and once our project finished, we all went our separate ways, and they retain all of that material. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so uh, as as part of the sort of connection that you find with people, what what got you into the Tanami Desert? Why did you why did you go out to the Tanami Desert? Because um, I know you've 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 spent a lot of time with the Walpuri people. Uh, tell me about that side of things and, and photographically what you brought to to the place and what you've taken from it. Yeah, well, it's been pretty life-changing. Um, I knew anecdotally, as I suppose many, many Australians do, that there were Aboriginal threads in my family ancestry that had been concealed. Now, I, I don't blame anybody in my family for having concealed them because until sort of the 1960s, if you were even up to a quarter Indigenous, you'd be taken from your family. So if you had the fortune to be a slightly lighter-skinned Indigenous person, of course you'd lie. I would do the same thing now. Yeah. Um, but and I, I had known it for a long time and it didn't really impact on me. I didn't really, didn't really think it mattered that much to me, but... Um, my uncle started looking for our Indigenous ancestors and as I started to see how difficult it was to track them down, how many layers of deception had been put in place, missing birth certificates, all of this kind of stuff, it, it intrigued me and I started looking as well. I looked for 20 years actually uh, with just no success really at all. Um, about 10 years ago um, I met a guy, Wanta Jumper Jimper, Steve Patrick is his name, is a Walpuri lawman from Lajamani. He was in Canberra and he was staying at Manning Clark House while he um, accessed records of his own people at IATSIS. And we became friends and I was telling him about how I was trying to find out about my um, Indigenous ancestry. And he was very, very kind to me and he just said, the efforts that successive Australian governments went to <laughs> to erase Indigenous people are so great that with the information you have, which is bugger all, the chances of you finding these people are so slim. So if it really matters to you, because I couldn't let it go, you know, if you really want to understand about 
Indigenous culture and about what your ancestors may have thought or felt or believed, the only way you're going to do it is if you come with me back to Lajamanu and, you know, you sit down with the old ladies there and just talk to them. And you don't have to, you don't need a permission slip, you know, you don't need to show up with a with a, a catalogue of birth certificates to prove that you've got Indigenous ancestry to work out what your relationship with the country is going to be and what your relationship with the Aboriginal Australia is going to be. You can forge that yourself. And so I did, you know, it was pretty eye-opening for me because there were a couple of things I'd never done. I had never gone out into the desert and I had never um, travelled somewhere that remotely alone. And I wasn't a terribly um, mechanical person or a terribly practical person. And so I had to teach myself all of this, these things about driving a four-wheel drive and, and how to fix a broken axle and, and how to do all of these things, how to cope in that environment. That was actually was probably more than 10 years ago now, um, probably closer to 15. And But, you know, those people, they had such an effect on me. Their kindness was just so overwhelming. They didn't know me from Adam. And I showed up and they just said, well, these are the things that you would have needed to have known as an Aboriginal woman and so we're going to show them to you. And they taught me hunting and they, they let me come to ceremony and they talked to me about painting and they just took me on like a, another daughter, you know, with no real reason to have to do that. And so I began then every year I would go out there several times a year. It's a four-day drive from Canberra and I guess I was going sort of three to four times a year up until when COVID prevented me from going. So tell me, it's, um, it's, yeah. you get to Alice Springs and then how much further from Alice Springs is it? It's about 22 hours northwest, northwest. of Alice Springs by car. Yeah. That, yeah. That'll help anyone listening understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way. Yeah. Yeah, so in the beginning I was just photographing people because um, I, I didn't really know how to give back to the community. I didn't know how to sort of, pay for what I was being, what I was receiving. And the last thing you want to do is show up there and flash your privilege, you know, by, by throwing money around or, and, um, and I knew that, that um, there were younger Walpuri people that were going into IATSIS and looking at negatives, photographs that were taken of their parents or grandparents. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can just continue that. So I was taking photos of people and, and um, lodging some of those negatives with IATSIS or where, wherever I could. But gradually over time, talking to the older people there and they were just saying to me, you know, you don't have to do that. <laughs> there are other ways that you can you can use your art form to interact with country and with culture. And so that's what I've been trying to do since then. All oh, right. And so tell me, you're um, just for details sake, you're shooting 35 mil out there, are you? And, and, and black and white film or colour negative or? Yeah, I've been... Um, shooting uh, Kodak Triax on a Leica, cool. 35 mil, and developing it in the field, hanging cool. it in trees and stuff like that. And then I can just give a loop to the kids or to the older people and they can come up and they can look at the photos of them. It's partly because they like it and it's partly because if I accidentally break any cultural rules or photograph something I shouldn't or something like that, they can just say, not this one. Yeah. you know, And I can cut that negative out and hand it to them so they know I'm not going to reproduce it. Oh, that's lovely. That's fabulous. Mm. And um, and you've been given a, a skin name, haven't you? It's your... I've got a skin name and I've got a bush name. Oh, cool. Um, a bush name is... A skin name 
you give a skin name to anybody that you want to have a continuing relationship with because um, it defines how other people relate to you in the community. So you might be, as a Nungala, I'm a mum to a certain number of people in the community and I might be daughter to other people in the community and it changes the relationship. Yes. Um, and a bush name is when you've developed strong enough relationships that, that you're allowed to be considered part of the community and then then you're given a Walpri name or a bush name. Yes. A, yeah. So um, that was a very proud moment for me. <laughs> um, and you told me because we, we had an exhibition here and you, you, you know, you opened and spoke at it and talked about it and I'm a huge fan of the, of the artist talk and I think it brings such a dimension uh, to the pictures and I'd encourage the the viewers to to go and have a look at your website we're going to have a link to it but there was a beautiful story you told of uh, a, a woman who took you down to uh, a little body of water um, uh, yeah. which I was I found very moving would you would you recount that please yeah I can't say her name sadly because she's passed away now so she's Kumanjai and with Welpuri law you can't speak the name of a person an important person who's passed away she was an amazing woman though amazing she was well into her hundreds when she passed away until her 90s she lived in a humpy house she refused to go and move into a normal house and she hunted her own food up until she was in her 90s wow. she's an incredible woman um, she was considered a sacred person in community. And so as a result of that, she was a little bit um, alone. There's a funny way of viewing sacredness, I think, in, in welfare communities. If a person is sacred enough, you don't talk to them. So there are relationships like um, sacred cousin, for example, that everybody has. For me, I'm a Nangala, so my sacred cousin is a Jakamara. We're not allowed to speak to each other because that relationship's too sacred. <laughs> But, of course, I didn't know any of the subtleties of that when I first came to Lajamanu. So I befriended her and um, for I think maybe I was the only non-Walpuri person that had a really close relationship with her for a while. Um, and uh, one day she said to me, Nangala, I want, I want you to come and meet my mum. <laughs> and she's like, you know. <laughs> How does this work? <laughs> I was thinking, what? This I've got to see. And she um she took me out to this waterhole, catfish waterhole, and the waterhole was her mum. Oh. She stripped off naked and she wanted to get down the banks of the waterhole and she couldn't get down there. So I ended up having to pick her up and carry her. She weighed nothing. She was like, you know, she was like a bird. And I took her down to the to the edge of the waterhole and she started putting her hands in the water and singing. And after a while when she paused, I said, can you tell me, what you're singing is this a sacred thing is it a ceremony thing and she said no no i just i'm singing to the waterhole so that she doesn't feel lonely oh, so beautiful. <laughs> was, yeah really beautiful and that sense of that sense of ownership and and love and family would mean that this this area would be so well protected and do, do you fear for younger generations do you find that there's that same connection with younger generations and this is kind of feeding into a question about the uh the project you did the Kurji project if i pronounce it correctly uh did you have a fear for the new generation and and what happened there i have a fear for the for the younger generations that are not on country the ones who are on country are amazing um uh, last year i sat in the back of a ute that was being driven by an 11 year old 
while three other 11-year-olds told me the names of all the plants that we passed in three different Indigenous languages and in English and told me what they were used for. Wow. They're so proud and brave and strong and, you know, steeped in their culture and they're amazing. But when they go into the city, there's a, a trust that they have for people that is misplaced. And so they're very, very quickly taken advantage of or mistreated or they lose their self-esteem, they lose that connection um that book the lumen said you know that i launched in your beautiful gallery um it has a quote in it from an older guy jerry jungler who's actually my friend wanter's dad and he talks about there being this invisible electric wire between a person and the country that feeds them in some way and the person feeds the country back in some way like an umbilical cord but if they're taken off the country that snaps and that strength no longer flows both ways anymore. And, and you see that. You see that happening with people when they're, they're taken off their country. And so that your desire to somehow help keep that connection with – because the reality is people are going to travel these days. Um, yeah. And, um, and so your desire was to see there some sort of a connection maintained. Is that, is that where the project came? Because it's, it's around an app, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we lose three Aboriginal people a week to suicide. And we've got a very small population of Aboriginal people, so that's actually a huge number. And most of those people are aged between 8 and 12. Wow. So you ask yourself, what does an 8-year-old have to go through in order to wake up one day and say it's not worth living? Yeah. So the question is not really how can you shield people from suffering because that's too big. Uh, an issue that would require genuine uh, reconciliation and closing of the gap. And I think this nation has never had an intention to genuinely do that and does not have that intention now. But the question is, how can you increase resilience so people can survive it? All this money has been put into groups like Lifeline to go into community and tell people how to be resilient, which is a little bit like um, brutalising someone, robbing their house and then showing up a week later and telling them how to deal with it. You know, white people should not be telling Aboriginal people how to be resilient in a, in a racist climate. And Indigenous people have their own systems of resilience, but you only access them normally when you're on country and doing ceremony because that's the way they've been disseminated. And so after um, a couple of suicides quite close to Lajamanu, um they started a festival called Milpree Festival, which was trying to get these ideas out a little bit further. But even so, you still had to show up. And it's 22 hours northwest of Alice Springs. A lot of it's people can't a, It's a big there. ask, isn't it? A big ask. So the Welpree then asked me if I would help them build an app so that they can spread those ideas even further. And, and that's what we've done. And, and the app, building the app was amazing for me too. It answered a lot of my questions about, you know, what happens? Okay, so so there's this invisible electric wire between you and your country. Sounds like the internet, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but what if you don't have a country? Yeah. You know, what if your what if your stolen generation? You don't know where your country is, or what if you're not Aboriginal and your your whole life has been in this country, but you don't have a country? And you don't feel connected. Yeah, you don't feel connected. What happens then? And this app sort of answered that. You know that that. You can build your own connections. You, you don't. 
there are different pathways to building that connection with country. Some of them are tribal or genetic or inherited, and some of them are willed. You know, you can go out and speak to the country and the country will speak back to you. You have that, you can be born in America, if you like, and it, you can come here and build that relationship with country if you genuinely try hard enough and long enough. Wow. That's really cool. Uh, and it's a, and it's a lovely, it's like a solution that that did not come out of, uh, an, a, forgive me for saying this, but a normal brain. It's a, it's, it's a solution came from someone who's sitting and listening and who's responding in a creative, artistic way uh, to, a, to a problem. And, um, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you've really solved anything big, but you've made something in that right direction and you've, the story's been told and people are thinking about it. And I know, I know in many ways you've changed how I think about it and the other people that you come in contact with too, uh, Gary and Tony and, all, and uh, Suzanne, and all, all of these people have had some sort of an experience with you and the story and I know that that story gets carried uh, in many ways. And the book The Lumen Seed itself has got so much in it uh, in the poetry. I wanted to ask you about the, the, the poetry and prose. Is that something that comes out whilst you're working or is it something that you mull afterwards and it just it disseminates? How do you work with the words and the pictures and all of that? Oh, when it's straight photography, I tend to do all of the photography at once and then later on I'll go back and think about it and look at the photographs and write poems in response to them. But with my Lumachrome prints, because they're 50-hour exposures often, or between sort of 30 and 50 hours, I spend a lot of time just sitting there. So I tend to write while the prints are being exposed. Well, yeah, we, we, much closer we, knitted together. We should totally <laughs> talk about the, these prints because um, this is what your current body of work that you're, you're, you're working on. Um, and it's it's super super exciting. I think. I mean, it's you've been doing it for a few years now. It's it's not new, but they are they are incredibly beautiful and, and and something that I hadn't seen or didn't realize I'd seen before. So tell me about the process and why you stumbled on it. Did it have a connection with the bushfires and the amount of sort of carnage of wildlife you'd witnessed, or where did it come from? Well, actually, it came from me bullshitting to my partner. <laughs> <laughs> You don't bullshit, do you, Gina? <laughs> I had a friend a couple of years ago, gosh, it's been, I guess, three and a half years ago now, so a long time, who died of bone cancer. And bone cancer is the most horrendous thing that I think I've ever seen in my life. You know, a person just just um, crumbles away in front of you. And he was an important person to me. And um, I had a bit of difficulty, I think, dealing with his death. And um, one day my partner said those terrifying words to me, I think we need to have a talk. <laughs> yeah, no, anybody I hate that. I hate that. Goes into the position when this happens. And so I immediately got into my, you know, deny till you die, just bluff your way out of this mode <laughs> without knowing what he was going to say. And he said, I think you need to see a grief counsellor. And I went, Why? And he said, because of that, and he pointed out the back window, and I genuinely until that moment had not realised how much roadkill I had dragged home and put it in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this just a couple of seconds to come up with something. So I said, oh, no, no, it's for an art project. <laughs> wow. And then I had to make it true. 
Hang on, so, hang on. Why were you dragging home the first part? I know we're talking about that grief. You had to see. You thought you should see a grief cancer because it's not a natural <laughs> thing to pick it up. Are you like are you a fly fisherman? And and are you tying flies with a fur? Are you making puppet shows with a dead? You know, a la Weekend at Bernie's. What's the what was the deal? Why were you doing it then? Before he, I, I was confronted with my friend dying, I had been speaking a lot to Indigenous women in the bush about what it was to be an Indigenous woman. And we'd been talking about the fact that non-Indigenous women and Indigenous women draw their strength in very different ways. So um, white women, to a large degree, have forgotten where their power comes from. Right. They think right. to some degree that by emulating the things that give men power, it's going to give them power. And so there's a lot of denial of the things that actually do give women power and maybe even forgetting that. In Aboriginal culture, there are many sources for women's power, but some of them are the fact that we can stand very strong at birth and we can stand very strong at death. And so those things tend to be in the hands of women. And I realised that I didn't have that capacity. And when my friend was passing away and he was just, you know, crumbling in front of me, I felt really ashamed of that, that I didn't have that strength and resilience with death. And so I guess, you know, after he passed away, I realised on some intuitive level that you can't jump straight to being able to honour human deaths. You kind of have to build your way up to it. I was going to say, how do you change that in someone? I mean... It, I don't think it's particularly a male female thing, isn't it? It's just a, a, a like a, a pot, like in my case, it's a, you know, it's a Paul Kate thing. Um, we deal with things differently as different people. So you felt that you needed to to, to harden up on this, did you? Yeah, it is in um, gendered to some degree um, because the way that men process things is more abstract than the way women process things. Women process things with their bones and blood and men tend to process things more with their minds. There's this wonderful quote by Anais Nin. She was having this massive fight with Henry Miller. As you and, <laughs> As I think anybody would have. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and she says um, women's creation must be exactly like her creation of children. It must be carved from her bones nourished with her own milk, englobed by her womb. It must be human creation of flesh. It must be different from man's abstraction. And there is a difference. And um, not everyone's going to agree with me about that, except there's many different views. But I, I, I think that difference is there. And I think it's there's beautiful. a way to deal with death is a bit like that too. Right. Um, men think about it, intellectualise about it. They... Um, um, yeah, a lot of their responses to death are shaped by thinking. And with women, uh, when we do that, it doesn't work out as well <laughs> because we're, we're made differently. Yeah. We need to sort of, it needs to be much more visceral and much more um, grounded in our bones. And when it is, then we're strong. So I realised I needed to to pick up dead birds and sit with them and try to understand that relationship in a more physical thing. And that meant that the camera had to go. I had to try to make these things with my hands to understand them. And I, and my, my reasoning was that if I could, if I could learn how to respond better to death in a bird, 
then gradually I might build the strength to be able to respond to death better with a person and then I might actually be useful to somebody who was passing away or to someone who'd lost somebody and not just be this kind of person that just um, echoed their grief. Interesting. Can I, can I ask, and, and some, it's just jagged my mind and stuck with me, it's, it could be a silly question, but have you, have you like killed any, any animals, wildlife as a part of this process of understanding death? Is that, and how comfortable, are you comfortable with that at all? Like the hunting side of things that, that is, it was, or is that not the sort of work you feel that you uh, were interested in as far as your understanding of country and death? Um, I haven't because um, what I'm trying to do is honour animals that have passed away who would otherwise be forgotten. Um, it's not because I, I, I'm particularly against hunting. I'm not. I, I've gone out hunting with the old ladies in Lajamanu, hunting goanna. I suck at it, apparently. I'm the, uh, I am actually the, the worst hunter they've ever gone with. <laughs> <laughs> I've never caught a thing, ever. <laughs> and they catch less when they go out with me <laughs> because I make so much noise. Um, but no, no, I haven't. Uh, normally, mostly they've been roadkill and lately they've been quite a few that have were killed as part of the during the fires yeah so i read somewhere you, you what's what's happened to them and what surrounds them the context is really important to the lumen prints in the process so explain what you mean by that and how and how you then set about doing a lumen print yeah a lot of this discussion around death you know that that, that i've been having with the old ladies um and, and they've just been so generous in telling me the, this, these things and teaching me these things. But they were basically saying that the, that the country is like a giant mother and, um, and when a person passes away on the country and they're actually not buried, um, they're on the country, the country sort of just takes them back into itself. And you can see that happening. Um, it's, you know, with a bird it becomes much more like a dried leaf or something and then it vanishes into the ground and it's gentle and compassionate when you see that happening um of course we don't do that we stick people in boxes and and crematoriums and things like that so we don't get to see it and so it makes everybody even more afraid of what's actually happening but central to that is that the country recognizes you so often when a person passes away they'll cover that person in ochre and so the country realizes because the country recognizes people by scent and also by language and other things if sometimes if you go out into a into the bush, the old ladies will put their hands in their armpits so they're covered in sweat and then wipe the sweat on you so that you smell like them so the country recognises you. Yes. It's that. And so when an animal passes away on their country, this is my response to that idea, is, is that I take um, the sticks and the stones and leaves and all of this material that's around that, animal at the time and I try to make that part of that print as well to bind together gotcha. that animal and the, the the things that the country will recognize the scent of you know it's just um these are things I think that, that are more appropriately done with people but I, I will never be in a position where where I'm culturally allowed to recognize the dead like that because my connection with indigenous um culture is too tenuous um yeah, my ancestry is too um, uh, too far from the Walpriest ancestry. Yeah. So perhaps so, life will change. Um, like you're a long way away from that, Judith. I 
<laughs> I'd hope you're a long way away. Although the motorbike now, perhaps. <laughs> so yeah, tell me more. You, you, where do you find these dead things and what do you do when you get there and how do you find them? Like, do you just stop and do you interrupt what you're doing and then sit around for 50 hours? What's the story? <laughs> I live in like the roadkill capital of Australia, I think. Oh. I mean, as we speak, there are about 50 dead wombats between me and Lake George. So they're just everywhere i never have a, a shortage of them and also people now sometimes will just bring them to me which is very nice right. uh, i mean there are laws against moving roadkill so uh i tend to make them on location and uh i'll come out and i put light sensitive paper under the um animal or bird or reptile and then i put layers of glass over the top and uh in those layers of glass, I'll often put seeds or sticks. I'll create landscapes from whatever materials are around. Um, even though it begins to develop quite quickly, as you probably know, emulsion paper develops for a long time. So if you put things on later, they still imprint. They're just lighter. Um, and as, um, as the sun arches sort of east to west, it illuminates the silver halide crystals that are in the paper um, from all directions. I also tend to elevate the um, the print on a Perspex box so that the light can come in underneath as well. And when you illuminate a crystal from all sides, you create a prism. And so colour appears. It only happens in black and white paper. In colour paper, it does nothing. So only black and white. And then over 50 hours, the, the animal is exuding all of this um, gases and chemistry. We call it terrible names like putrescence and these kinds of things. Juices. Yeah. And, uh, and they all have various salts and things in them, so they interact also with the silver halide crystals and imprint on the page. Um, and uh, condensation appears and moisture makes pinks, so I paint in any of, the, any of the moisture that appears. Sometimes there's blood or the little bugs walk out of the animal. I leave all of those tracks in. Cool. But so I, I sort of simultaneously um, paint the image and also construct the image with um, things on the glass. Sometimes I'll put wax or resin on the glass and scratch it off to make lines. Or yeah, I'm, I mean I'm there often with a gas mask because I don't know if things like foxes. I don't know if they've died from baits and if they have, strychnine will come off with the gases. So I'm often sitting there by the side of the road with a gas mask on. <laughs> Must be quite the sight for what thirty hours, like yeah. Uh, you'll have people going to work and then back and going. <laughs> yeah, who's this? Can stop? I've had truck drivers stop. Sometimes they'll bring me back a dead rabbit or something. Oh. So they'll always yell out the window, "What are you doing, love?" <laughs> They're trying to make friends, you know, when they bring you dead things. That's how boys work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. So then, you, you know, the process is because these 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 prints are for sale. Um, uh, they're 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 gorgeous. They are absolutely stunning. I'd encourage anyone to to pop onto your website and have have a look. Have you shown them in in, in an exhibition as yet? Uh, I've shown them in quite a few. I've done um, a big exhibition in Auckland recently, which I really liked, which were huge light boxes, and oh, wow. it was during wow. lockdown, so people could see them out their apartment window or drive past them. One journalist there said it was like the invasion of the Australian undead. <laughs> dead echidnas and stuff in the city centre. <laughs> oh, and I've got a show on at the moment in Canberra, which is also outdoors. Um, really big prints, sort of over two metres square prints. 
and um, that they're uh, outside the ANU um, with some other really great uh, Indigenous artists and non-Indigenous artists. Yeah, so they're around. I really, I'm really liking the um, public um, outdoor exhibitions because they're so egalitarian. You don't have to be a kind of art gallery person yeah. to see them. Yeah. Anybody can see them. I really I like that. Yeah, and I think also the print process is because there's less demand on the perfection of a gallery environment. You yeah. can use print processes, which is a little a little less, you know, because if this was all to be, I don't know, you're not using Duratrans, are you? The, the the silver halide process. They're super expensive prints, but they they give you the best backlits. There's a lot of people who are using, um, you know, the same sort of stuff you might see in the Apple Store or in airports with giant light boxes, which is. You know, they're gorgeous, and I think your images are so strong, they would work in pretty much any environment on any kind of material. And, you know, you don't need all those tiny, tiny shadow separations and that to tell the story. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. It is wonderful. It's You can get these shows out. People can see them. And let's, let's be frank, you know, there's a lot of downsides to being indoors with a lot of other people at this point in time. Yeah, and... um you know, from a photographer's point of view too. I mean, I did a big gallery show in Sydney last year. It cost me 10 grand to put the thing on and I sold two prints out of it. Um, so I didn't even come anywhere near covering the cost of it. It was hugely expensive. Nobody can afford to keep doing that. And probably, I don't know, at the most three, 400 people saw it. Whereas these light boxes, you know, heaps of people see them. It didn't cost me a single cent to put on, yeah. you know, and um, and you end up selling the work anyway because then people know who you are and they get in touch via social media and you sell prints that way. So it just makes far more sense to me to do it that way. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. And so how have you been responding to the pandemic? Has it been – I mean, you seem bright as a button um, and, and coping quite well with it. A lot of people are – you know, are actually struggling quite well. Is are you got a brave face on, or is it? Are you just powering on with your work? Oh, look, it's it's been hard because you know I've had um, friends and peers that have been really suffering, and nobody wants to see the people they care about suffer. And I guess the hardest thing for me has been that the Northern Territory border has been closed, so I haven't been able to get back to the desert. I don't know when I'm going to get back there, so that's rough. But it's nothing compared to what most people are going through. In terms of isolation, and I love isolation. I mean, I mean, I work with roadkill. And my life is pretty isolated anyway. <laughs> you know, people aren't dropping into my studio every five minutes. I can tell you. <laughs> so yeah, it's been good uh, in a way. I've been um, embracing the motorbike, and I reread Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance cool. recently, which has got some really, which is not actually about motorcycle maintenance. Oh. It's about um, learning how to value yourself by doing these small things like maintaining your motorcycle. But it can also mean um, not shooting off 50,000 um, images on your digital camera but spending five hours to get one on an analogue. You know what I mean? It's about taking the time to value yourself. And, and in this lockdown, that's what we have. We have this chance to re-evaluate this kind of, you know, um, haphazard way we've been living our lives where everything's been crammed into the I don't have time basket and really, you know, look after yourself. You fix up the space that you live in and make it beautiful or grow a garden or, 
get a chicken or do these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's fabulous. I mean, that's the way to, to tackle it. And I think, for, as you mentioned right back in the beginning, photography is, has been a very lonely pursuit for a lot of people. And uh, the, the joy people get from collaborations, you can see that they're ha looking for that community connection with it. But the reality is photography doesn't particularly be don't operate that way and you've got to build it into your work somehow. Um, so a lot of yeah. photographers have enjoyed that time to make stuff. But, um, yes, I know watching other people and also watching politics and watching the response to politics, um, it's been really tough. And what's going on in America, I, you know, I just, I just shake my head with disbelief. I, I'm just grateful yes. where we are. Yeah, it's, it's really, really terrifying what's happening in, in the United States. But, I mean, that, that the response there is based on this kind of cynical inequality that we have in this country as well. You know, one thing the fires really taught us is that we don't matter. You know, the, the night when the fireball came through Araluen and really everybody who lived in that area's life was hanging in the balance, that night, the IRFS was called back to Canberra to defend the city when the closest fires were 60 kilometres away, and they did that for the protection of politicians. The same thing, you know, when, when there were there were many, many small towns around here that have the same story. We just didn't matter. You know, we could be in the absolute line of enormous firestorms, things burning in the sky coming down at us, and yet the only thing that the media wanted to talk about was the fact that there was too, too much smoke around Parliament House, <laughs> you know. So we knew that before COVID hit, that yeah. we didn't matter. And if anyone's in any doubt about that, I think COVID cleared it up. 100%. I mean, there's just – it's been all hands to the pump to deal with that. And I just think the, the switch off from the, the bushfire and the, and the victims in focus – I mean, it certainly feels that way. I'm sure on the ground – yeah. There's a lot of work still being done to make to, to make things better there. But in the media, you just, you know, it's probably a good idea not to, to watch the, the media or listen to the media. Well, the scary thing is we're nine weeks out from the next fire season. Nine weeks. Nine weeks. And the average age of an, R, of an RFS firefighter is 65, which means they're all high risk for COVID. So... Think about that It's <laughs> getting our way, right? We have done nothing, nothing to fireproof the landscape since the catastrophic fires came through. There are huge amounts of the country unburned. There's regrowth that's been unchecked. And the average age of, age of an RFS firefighter is 65. If you took out every RFS firefighter that was 65 or over, you would be left with around 10% firefighters. And we could be in for the same season we had last year, for all we know. Well, at least you've had more rain in Canberra uh, than you had the season before, so there there may have some sort of an effect on the situation. Yeah, I hope so. That's right. Well, we don't have the same drought conditions. That's definitely true. Still, it doesn't stop the Australian bush from doing what the Australian bush does. No. Every now and then. <laughs> it doesn't. So, so tell me, um, we're coming towards our end. Tell me what what's up to next. What are you? What's what's just over the horizon for you? Uh, well, uh, on Monday I'm heading to Bundanon for a two week residency, hanging out with Arthur Boyd's ghost. So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, really okay. looking forward to it. And I'm trying to finish um, this book, which is a, a lot of these prints are going to form part of this book. 
um, which is a book talking about country, what country is and relationships with, with the country and with death and with all the things we've been talking about today. So I'm hoping that that, that book is going to be progressed at least in this um, residency and I hope it will be out within the next 12 months. That's super exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, you're a trained uh, RFS fighter now. Uh, yeah. So I, I gather that you're, <laughs> you know, you're getting ready for that in some way. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm doing all of the um, assessments and things to, for that so that I'll be ready when the fires come through. And I found out too, to my enormous joy, that the RFS brought in a motorcycle response team. So oh. I'm positioning myself to be able to be part of that in the future as well. <laughs> I was funny, when I saw that you'd got yourself a bike, a really nice bike too, because I'm one of these people that's always interested in motorbikes, but I've had such an such an injury in the family to my grandfather that we're all banned, you know, all the families are, yeah, no one's ever doing that. I'm looking at you, looking at you picking up a motorbike going, oh, how cool would that to be you? <laughs> you know, you've got to do it. I have never had this much fun in my entire life. It is the best thing I've discovered since cameras. So <laughs> much joy. It's just, you know, the, I crashed my motorbike a couple of weeks ago in the sleet and the You're snow. You're selling it, Judith. No, I did, right. I crashed the motorbike and I'm, falling off the motorcycle and rolling down the road and even then as I'm rolling I'm thinking to, to myself wow how lucky would I be if I died on the motorcycle <laughs> my god my life is so good yeah perfectly wrapped up in a bow <laughs> yeah it's just it's just so you get so much joy and it's not just that machines are great I'm a person who loves machines and my motorcycle is entirely analog it doesn't have any computers or anything in it but it's also you, you get to be part of the landscape. If it rains, you get wet. You see all the birds. The moment I knew that I needed a motorcycle, I was actually just trying out a friend's motorbike and I was down at Lake George and this it was in the summer and this wedge-tailed eagle took off from a tree beside me and just glided between me and the sun about two metres above my head and I could see all the light streaming down through all its feathers and all those tribal markings on its underside and I'm just there with like tears streaming down my face thinking this is the most amazing thing. In a car, there'd be a roof there. I wouldn't see it, you know. That's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah, you should get one. Never let anybody stop you having a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> I like that advice. That's excellent. That's excellent. Actually, my, my dream was to get a um, an ag bike back when I was 16, 17 or whatever. They have a really low first gear and I could load it up with my camera gear and just pick my way along those paths that you can't get to normally and yeah. see those parts of the country you can't get to normally. Uh, you know, because you're right. I think you do uniquely see and feel everything that's around you. It's a very special experience. Yeah, I've basically got an egg bike. It's a DR, Suzuki DR650, which is like the Toyota Hilux of the motorcycle world. <laughs> to go with your Toyota Hilux of the car world, which has your one-ton ute with a water carrier on the back, so you can be a firefighter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're wonderful, yeah, Judith. Emerging, yeah. <laughs> well, look, thank you for, for, for saving half the world. I believe that you're a big part <laughs> of that, of the Southern Hemisphere. So um, I'd just like to thank you for your time and, and wish you good luck going forward. The book, I'm super excited to see when it comes out. Uh, I'll keep an eye on things. We'll put a link in the show notes to all of this that I can. Uh, if there's anything you want to include in that judith please just let me know and um we'll say goodbye and um and catch up with you hopefully 
uh, early in the year, next year perhaps, and, and your book will be out and there won't be any fires and COVID will be slightly at bay and we'll <laughs> feel a little bit less oppressed perhaps. Yeah, look, thanks for doing this podcast and for everything you're doing to keep the photography community together and supported. It's really appreciated. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so there you go. And what about, um, we? I know we can't record this, what I said to Judith. Right? We've got to finish recording there and then Judith and I kept on talking. I know. And there's stuff, there's stuff you, we probably oh, should like, have had in the interview. but <laughs> we could, You could have interviewed her for an hour Two hours just on the Armenian stuff. Just you do probably a day's documentary just on the indigenous stuff. Well, like, the the, the Walpri, um people uh, that that work and the book, the Lumen Seed. Uh, I'd encourage you to hop onto a website. I think there's still copies available for sale. Mm. It's just it's a beautiful series of photographs, mm. but with accompanying prose and poetry, talking about her time there and the stories of these people. Um, so, and and she. What was that last story she told before after we closed the episode off? She talked about. Well, are you gonna you're gonna ask her if we can share that, and okay. then I'm gonna put that. We're gonna do a little video of that on the Facebook. On the face, fuck no, the Facebook. The on the blog well, little, yeah. where all the stuff is in the show notes. In the show notes. So if people want to see that little, it's just a little snippet, but it's yeah. pretty funny. And then you can see how gorgeous and magnetically fabulous she is. Um, I mean, and it, we haven't even talked about the incredible work she does with dead animals that is oh, yeah. just, like, stonkingly good. Yeah, like, yeah. like blow your mind good stuff. Like, it is, does my head in. Um, Dingo's Noctuary is the, is the I name just of want a copy of every single thing that she did in that. Yeah, it they're, they're, they're so basically beautiful. sun prints. And so, yeah, um, they're they They're not basically sun prints. They're like a, they're like a, like a, just a. Yeah. And I love the idea that it's all about the context. It, and and so she – and it takes a long time to expose, you know, sometimes like 30 hours. So she sits around and she writes because she's sitting with – being with mm. the dead animal. Mm. And while she records the her thoughts and the imagery and she just hops on her motorbike and goes into the next thing. Yeah. And she's sometimes I'm so on the, getting a motorbike. Sometimes he's on the side of the road. I We're know. getting motorbikes. We're going to turn into what if we just old like people Vespers, with motorbikes. Like Roman holiday. Not a fucking Vespa. We can zoom into the We city. are not getting a fucking Vespa. I want a motorbike. I want a Triumph. Are you ready for your moment can of colour? No. Are you ready for your moment can of colour? No. Come on, I can't get health life insurance as it is. <laughs> Let's just double down on that shit. No. Are you ready for your moment of colour? <laughs> I am ready for my moment of colour. Yeah, yeah. What we're going to talk about is. Hang on. Before you do that. Yes, I'm hanging on. What was the biggest thing that happened this week? Pixie set. Oh, fuck yes it was. Yeah, yeah. Did the world turn on a dime when that was launched? I've never heard so many hysterically happy people in my yeah, life. Yeah, well, the, the fact is that Pixie set's been around for a long time. Well, they were the first. They were, they were the first beautiful web gallery system mm. there, but they never had connection to make to sell product. It was all about downloading the digitals and sharing the but story. But they have quite a few labs hooked up with them and we are their latest. And it's incredible because they have not stuffed with any of our products. You just get exactly what you always get from us. Yeah. And um, and it's it's beautiful and glorious and I'm over the moon about it. And everybody, I I have never had so many people hyperventilating over the But internet. i got to say, if, for those listeners out there who are – 
engage one engage with the pig set and and set their imagery up don't get every one of our products and load it into your store you will confuse Why? the hell out of the buyers no, no you yeah will, yeah no, no, the, no like this is this is the thing you've with got it. to select you've got to be very careful to yeah. reduce what you're showing and that's where other gallery systems la la you know yeah um pick time do it so well is that they say here are the three things which are really beautiful. Just sell those. And, and but everybody's got their own – this is why I think it's so great that they are offering everything is because everybody's got their own sure, vibe. Sure, their but own they're not thing. stopping you from putting everything in your in your product listing. No, you can if you want to put every single product we offer. Yeah. But I agree. Choose what works for your brand yeah, and what yeah. works for your people. Yeah. And and don't – you know, don't fuck around too badly with the pricing. Like, give give really clear distances between your pricing. Actually, I'm going to pivot on our moment of colour. Oh, And we'll save what I was God. going to talk about for next week. Okay. This week, though, yes. one of the questions that came up in dealing with both Picktime, Pixie Set, Photo Merchant is, what colour space do I upload the files? You know, what does the lab need to print when it comes to using these gallery systems? And of course, as a lab, we're like, yeah, we want Adobe RGB because it's got all the colours and you'll, and it makes great <laughs> use of our master fine art and maybe not so good of our silver halide and matte art, which haven't quite got the biggest camp colour gamut. But like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I want it. But the fact is, you can't put Adobe RGB files in a web gallery because there's about two web browsers that, if you're lucky, will make will render the Adobe RGB file looking good. What it'll do will suck the colour out of it and make it look desaturated. But aren't they just? Aren't they just? Um, then you're not putting. Do you put the high res? Well, you upload the high reses. So okay. you go to you know whatever your service is. I don't you know. You select how it the works. images in the gallery and you upload them. Yeah. You don't upload a low res set. Their gallery system does the cut down versions. Okay. Yeah. So but the high res has got to sit on a server somewhere. Yeah. So that when an order is made, the high res file gets shuffled it's over drawn, here at drawn. the lab. Yeah. And of course, I mean perhaps a lot of them use off the shelf image handling, image processing software like Image Magic, spelt with a K at the end. Oh. And it's a, it's, a, it's an ancient system, but they don't have color management built into them. So it's not going to take an Adobe RGB file and split off a web version in sRGB. Oh, so you're just going to have green, freaky-looking people? Not green, no, no, desaturated. Yeah, but they end up looking so, green. So the best way to describe it, and we have talked about this in previous podcasts, is uh, if you imagine a do uh, and imagine a color space is a perfectly round thing, a disc. It isn't, but let's just use... The analogy. So you've got this big disc and maybe that disc It's a flat circle, like time. Flat circle, like time and space. Or Correct. like the flat earthers believe the Have planet Have you even is. seen that fucking show that that came from? I'm going to make you watch that. I'm going to watch that. So imagine this disc is about 50 centimetres across. So it's a big disc, big circle. And then you get a, what in Australia we might call a biscuit cutter. Or in, <laughs> in America, be like a cookie cutter. Oh, for crying out loud. Is this a cookie woodwork cutter. thing? No, no, cookie cutter. Oh, biscuits in biscuits. woodwork is it something else. Oh, yeah, biscuits mean something. No, no, like a cookie cutter. Like you've got your dough and you're going to stamp this thing down and cut out biscuits. Yeah, yeah, Or cookies yeah. if you're yeah. an American. Yeah. So imagine your biscuit cutter is maybe 25 centimetres round, but your whole dough roll out, perfectly circular, is 50 centimetres. And you stamp it in the middle, right? And then it just... So what happens is, what happens to that dough, and imagine the dough, uh, if the very middle of this giant circle is black and white, mm -hmm. and out the edges as extreme colours, and it goes in a circle, like red, green, blue, around this circle, sort of a thing. So you, your extreme colours are right out on the edge. Now, if you just put a biscuit cutter in there, or a cookie cutter, and stamp the middle out, mm -hmm. you just chucked away all those high 
That's what happens if you give an Adobe RGB file to a website. It just shows you just the DSAT. It doesn't even cope with those extreme colors. Whereas if you convert it to sRGB on your machine in Lightroom or Photoshop, what it does is it tucks down all that 50 centimeter circle down into that 30 centimeter circle. Mm. It tucks it down. Or f- Did I say 25 centimeters? Whatever. Oh, honey, nobody remembers. The smaller circle. It tucks it down. They're all hungry for biscuits now. I know, me too. It tucks it down, especially the hot ones out the oven. Ta- if you keep saying tucks it down one more time, you're, you're making me think of RuPaul's Drag Race and oh, what they tuck. So let's that. just not go there. Well, here we go. Imagine. Oh, my God. No, no, Imagine colour being we're tucked about between its legs. No, we're getting, thinking about something big getting tucked into something small. <laughs> I don't know if they heard you because you weren't laughing into the mic. Oh, fuck you so Anyway, so I hope that everyone understands that if you're using a web gallery system or your stuff is going on the internet, it has to be an SRGB because every web browser out there, well, not everyone, there's a couple that will look at Adobe <laughs> RGB and go say, I've got to change your colour space and it deals with it. But there's only a couple of those and not everyone, you know, it's not reliable. Just make it SRGB first. So Pixie Set, yay, welcome. Thank you to the... Atkins Stable of Wonderfulness to have you here. Uh, make sure your files are sRGB. <laughs> Photo Merchant, Pick Time, Shoot Proof, Insta Proofs. Make sure they're sRGB when you put them through the files. So that's your moment of colour. Oh, well, that was nice. It was kind of interesting, vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> and we'll let everyone go because this is episode 21. And I got on my high horse and trotted around in the beginning. I apologise. No, not at all. It was good stuff. Yes. Well, good night, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll come back to you next Sunday. And we still love you, Melbourne. We Hang in you. there. Only only like three more weeks, baby. You Hang can do it. We love you. You can do it. Thanks for doing it for us. Yes. Yes. Taking one for the team. Yes. And, and, and New South Wales, stop going to fucking parties. Pull yourselves together so you don't turn and the next Victorian. And Queensland right now. They've been and out And Queensland have been doing some dumbassery. We don't party in Adelaide, so it's not really an issue. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Love you. 